I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. This month we're learning what love really means through conversation, no touching, with Rogue and Remy LeBeau from Marvel's X-Men and we're applying Doctors Gottman and Abrams' eight dates essential conversations for a lifetime of love to their relationship woes. Okay, friends, you will not believe the email that we got just this morning. Peaches Gullickson is pet of the month. Peaches pet of the month. Snake is better than Lisa, that's not the email I thought you were going to talk about. I know, but I'm just so excited. Well, it is pretty cool. Our gorgeous little snakey, Peaches, 12 years old. She's a creamsicle corn snake. She's adorable. She loves nothing more than slithering about her terrarium, crawling over some rocks. Looking out the looking out the glass, wondering if she can eat us. We submitted her, what, like three months ago? We are not joiners. Like, our uh, apartment complex is super into building community. We've lived here for, like, almost 11 years, and we've <laughs> never participated. We've never gone to the paint and sips. Yeah, but then, but in December, you decided you wanted to well, submit just, Snakey as a pet of the month. Right. Well, I've been looking at those pictures, and uh, the pets of the month are always cats or dogs. I just felt that it was a little bit biased. Yeah. So we took a glamour shot of Snake Sir. And we submitted it with literally the most infantile email I've ever sent. <laughs> but then I can't believe how excited I was when I got the email from the office that our snake is pet of the month. Especially after in December they rejected her. I know. I thought I thought I would have to send in a new picture. I thought I thought we were off the docket. Oh, so yay! Congrats to Peaches. Congrats to Lisa. Uh, she is pet of the month. How cool. I, I mean, it is really cool. I'm, when that flyer gets put up, and, and the way they do it is they put the flyer up next to all the mailboxes and all the buildings. I'm going to go around. I'm going to take photos of all those flyers. <laughs> Snake is pet of the month. Then I wrote the signature song. Snake is pet of the month. <laughs> Sometimes we call her Snakey. Most of the times we do. Uh, but, but what was the thing you were talking about, the, Brad? The email I was talking about is we also just learned that the first ever comic book couples counseling panel is going to occur at the Awesome Con in Washington, D.C. on May 1st through 3rd. We don't have all the details yet. We don't know the time. We don't know the room. We don't know even the exact day. We literally got the email as we were sitting down to do this podcast. Yeah. And it was another situation where we had deep concerns that we had already been rejected and nobody had told us. So we were already like like inching into the morning process of like, well, maybe next time. But uh, but we got in. I'm so excited. And what we're going to do is we're going to take uh, the, the panel time. We're going to do basically what we do on the show, but we're going to focus on 
ex-couples, and we're going to determine who is the ultimate ex-couple. Is it Rogan Gambit? Is it Scott and Gene? We know you got opinions. We know you have opinions, and to help us get the right answer, we are going to uh, have fellow panelists, guests, join us to talk about it, and Liz Reed of Cuddles and Rage, uh, author of uh, Bites of Terror, which is dropping at the end of this month. It's a really cool graphic novel. You've heard us talk about it a couple times. They may be guesting on this podcast real soon to talk about it, Liz and Jimmy. And uh, Matt Herms is going to be, he's uh, the colorist for... Everybody Cool. Everybody Cool. I mean, he's currently doing like uh, Archie and Katie Keene for Archie Comics. You know, he's done Sonic. He's done Power Rangers. Uh, he's an incredible talent, a really good friend. And, and local to us. And local so to how us. So lucky, how and lucky can we be? Obviously, both Liz and Matt, we got to say thank you uh, for joining us on our first panel adventure. I'm a little nervous, Lisa. It's probably your clout that got us in, so thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Liz, Liz and Matt. But I, w- I am so excited to bring the concept of comic book couples counseling to a live audience, a, a live audience of actual comic book fans, because everybody we talk about it to, they we, the title gets a chuckle, but uh, I don't know. I'm super stoked. I, I want to prepare slides. Well, what you're saying is- I want to do full TED Talk mode. I mean, yeah, PowerPoint. It's PowerPoint time. It's PowerPoint yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, but in our local circle, when we talk about comic book couples counseling, we don't get the love like we do from you listeners. <laughs> uh, we get a lot of like cocked heads and uh, raised eyebrows. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's really nice to get a little bit of validation from the biggest convention in our area. So thank you to AwesomeCon. Yeah, thank you. We'll we'll be in you. Oh, we'll we'll be, we'll in, be awesome. in you, awesome con. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's happening. Okay, uh, that's that's enough bragging. Uh, we we should probably get on with the show. Snake is part of the month. Yeah, yeah, we can get on with the show. Snake is part of the month. Uh, okay, Rogue and Gambit. Let's get real. Kelly Thompson is the reason we were most excited to talk Rogue and Remy. And while we've really enjoyed our previous episodes focusing on the 90s adjectiveless X-Men comics and the Howard Mackey miniseries, we are extremely thrilled to be here discussing these specific issues with all you lovely listeners. And based on the online chatter we've been having with you guys for the last couple of weeks, uh, we know you're just as excited to be at this moment in time regarding this particular ex-couple. I first became aware of Kelly Thompson's work when she kicked off the Kate Bishop Hawkeye solo series. You know, we love, love, love what Matt Fraction and David Aja did with the Hawkeye universe. Pizza dog. Pizza dog. And Thompson took that Kate and ran with her all the way to the other side of the country and to the West Coast Avengers, where Lisa, I think that's where you first encountered Kelly Thompson's work. Yes, I love West Coast Avengers. I loved the variety of characters, these teen characters who are all engaging with the world in their own like little specific ways. Uh... Kate, Kate Bishop, Kid Omega, Brodock. Oh, Brodock's so good. So wonderful. And what I love the most is that it's legit so funny. Kelly Thompson writes dialogue that just gets me. Like, I love her voice. And, I, and when I started reading Rogue and Gambit, I didn't realize that it was the same writer. And uh, she's managed to write Remy in a way where I'm like, I kind of get it. I kind of understand why Rogue is so into him. He is clever. He is uh, complimentary. He's not, he loves some innuendo, but he's not like so ridiculously 
overt. And I know that this is more modern dialogue. So, of course, you know, I would engage with it more as a, a modern lady. Uh, but I, I don't know. One of the things I love specifically is that, that she varies her French. Like, yeah. She has the benefit of Google Translate so he can say more than like share and Mono no. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I I've, I really enjoyed this first volume. Yeah, I'm so, so stoked to talk about it. We're on Team Thompson. Uh, you know, Kelly graduated from the Savannah College of Art and Design with a degree in sequential art. Her first gig in comics was as a journalist writing for comic book resources from 2009 to 2015. And while she wrote a bunch of reviews and essays and the like, she was most known for her column, She Has No Head, which centered on women in comics. Of course, you know, we love this little bit of background. Uh, There's hope for us yet, Lisa. We too can become comic book writers one day. Who knows what the future holds? (laughs) I love the fact that she does come from a journalistic perspective, you really get the sense when you read her comic that she has that encyclopedic mind that she can reference back to. And she uses it to like point out some of the sexist foibles of comics past while still really loving on them. They're not perfect, but they're ours. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of what Grant Morrison did with Batman back in the day where he's like, all of this is canon and we're going to make it work for now. And Kelly Thompson is doing that with Rogan Gambit. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, from her days at Comic Book uh, Resources, she went on to IDW Comics and there she was hired to write Gem and the Holograms based on the classic 80s cartoon series. Did you ever watch Gem and the Holograms, I did not. I'm a little... I'm a little too young. Uh, I was really into it uh, uh, for a good long period there. She did that comic with artist Sophie Campbell. I really need to go back and read that book because, like I said, I really like that cartoon. Her first Marvel work was working with Kelly Sue DeConnick on one of the Secret Wars spinoff titles called Captain Marvel the Carol Corps. With Brendan Fletcher, she did a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers spinoff called Pink, detailing the adventures of, you guessed it, the Pink Ranger. From that came the Kate Bishop comic and West Coast Avengers. In 2018, she signed an exclusive contract with Marvel Comics, and that's when Rogue and Gambit took off. The success of this book would lead to the wedding between the characters in X-Men Gold number 30 and the Mr. and Mrs. X series, also written by Thompson. But we're getting ahead of ourselves there. Don't worry, we'll cover that next week. Spoilers. Spoilers. Uh, (laughs) Thompson is a comic book machine, though. She kicked out a Nancy Drew mini for Dynamite Comics. She took over Jessica Jones' character from Brian Michael Bendis. She's been writing the Captain Marvel Monthly since October of 2018. She did a Sabrina the Teenage Witch miniseries for Archie Comics. And she's currently writing the Deadpool Monthly as well as the upcoming Black Widow series. Oh, my goodness. Deadpool in Kelly Thompson's hands. That's going to be... So good. Yeah. And guess what? What? That's just the surface of what Thompson's written. Her bibliography is filled with dozens of other comics. And after reading Rogan Gambit, we want to read all of them. We've actually just gone and picked up her Carol uh, Danvers stuff ASAP. Yeah, we did. And I'm excited to read them. As usual, though, before we dive into the book itself, we got to discuss the relationship book we've been using to help us through the romantic turmoil of our characters, Lisa, how are we using eight dates this week? For those who have just 
tuned in. Our love gurus for Rogan Gambit are doctors John Gottman and Julie Schwartz Gottman, and we're referencing their book, Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. The Conceit of Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. Why did I include that title twice? What <laughs> you a like it paragraph. so much. Who wrote this copy? Is <laughs> a couple that will take an hour out of their week for eight weeks and go on these prescribed dates with conversation topics outlined in each chapter as a means of establishing a lasting, successful relationship. Successful meaning till death do us part. We understand that it is not everyone's goal or best life to have one partner over multiple decades or till one or both of you waltz off of this mortal coil. <laughs> but it is our goal as a married couple and the goal of this book. And I think the goal of at least Rogue. Don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But it depends on at what point in the timeline we're talking about. Like, I don't think that's been her goal from date one. Well, her goal from date one is to never be with anyone ever. Right, right. And I'm yeah, kind of yeah. teasing Remy because he acts like a promiscuous dude. But we discovered in our last episode, he does that as a mirror to his poor self-esteem. And he does eventually, spoilers, marry Rogue. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's his idea. So I've just double backed on my own comment. Because I think Rogue is the one who fears commitment. We'll get into it. We'll talk about it on this episode. Over the past two full episodes, I've regaled you with all of the major accomplishments of Drs. John and Julie schwartz Gottman. I've told you the research of why you shouldn't trust algorithm-based matching apps and how it is better to just go on dates and have honest conversations. And we've gone over the art of listening. What haven't we done? Actually dipped into the chapters and gone on any dates. The first Rogan Gambit episode, we are making these grand plans to actually go through with some of these chapters as prescribed in the eight dates. It's hard. And we have not. Time Podcast is hard. fail. Time is hard. We hey, don't have time. <laughs> we are very busy and important. We've and important gone people. and done stuff together, but we we've just needed to relax and and be away from any kind of serious thought. So our dates together have just been regular dates. They've been the F word. Fun. Yeah, fun. <laughs> we'll do one. Maybe yeah, not. Yeah. Why? I don't know. What don't make should, any more promises. What we, yeah, that's what we have really learned. Okay. <laughs> this episode, I decided it's time to finally at least read one of the date chapters in this book. So I decided to go with chapter one, Lean on Me, Trust and Commitment. We actually dipped our toe in this chapter with our mini ep on X-Men number 30 about Scott and Jean's wedding. We included one of their open-ended questions from this chapter as part of our discussion, but I hadn't actually read the chapter properly. I think that this chapter goes perfectly with our discussion of Kelly Thompson's Rogan Gambit volume one, considering that they agree in a session with Dr. Grand that what separates them is trust or lack thereof. And it's their lack of trust that has not allowed them to truly commit to one another. So, Doctors Gottman, what is trust? Eight Dates calls trust the oxygen that relationships need to breathe. Like oxygen, it has to be constantly generated so that the flame of the relationship doesn't snuff out. When there is a lack of trust, it is these sorts of questions that begin to bubble up. Do you cherish me? How important am I to you? Do I come first in your life? Will you take me for granted? 
Are you always looking around for someone better than me? Will you care when I'm upset with you and listen to my concerns? That's a lot of heavy there. That is, those are the backbones of distrust. And it's a terrible place to be in a relationship. Hence, you can't commit when you have those questions in your heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just I'm just going through our history. Have those questions ever appeared in any serious way? I don't think so. I mean, we've talked about trust issues in the past. I mean, there's our, our classic one, um, the con Brad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where yeah. we can go into a convention. Is that a trust issue? I go in there unsure of whether we're in there for the entertainment of both of us. Or whether you just want to leave me in the dust. Ouch. That is a trust issue. that way. (laughs) Well, because it goes with the last question. Uh, Will you care if I'm upset with you and listen to my concerns? And my concerns is (laughs) when we go into a convention that is crowded, Brad is tall enough to see over everybody. And so he walks super fast and then his little tiny wife cannot keep up. I I would argue, though, that I am no longer that way. No, no. That is very early in our relationship. I think you. I think that you are very concerned with my feelings, especially because I wear my feelings Right on the surface, you can't engage it's hard to with me. Them. <laughs> you can't engage with me without engaging with my deepest emotions. Okay, all right. Sorry, sorry to distract. Just those questions hit me hard. Okay. I do worry sometimes that I take you for granted, like things like no. you do all of the housework. You do uh, all of. But the- I like doing the housework. I'm. You're out there making the bacon. You know, I I work from home, and you're driving all over Kingdom Come to, and you're the primary breadwinner in this relationship. So I can do the laundry. Oh, I I really appreciate that. When I point out, like, I always feel guilty when I'm like, Brad, I'm out of panties. Yeah, well, I came to the realization this morning, I'm out of underwear. So I got to do some underwear today. Woot. (laughs) Keep this all in. Okay, when we are first dating, we try to present our best selves and try to hold back the parts of ourselves that we think will lead to rejection. Our idiosyncrasies, our insecurities, maybe it's part of our past. <laughs> Rogan Gambit, cough, <laughs> cough, cough. But as a relationship deepens and the things we are holding back begin to reveal themselves inevitably, that's when the generation of trust really starts happening. We reveal ourselves and we are not rejected. We express our needs and our partner does the best to meet them. And this is what we talked about last week about, you know, having to expose yourself eventually to your partner. It doesn't have to happen on date one or year one, but at some point you got to put your whole being out there. And I try to tell that to my single friends who are trying to like do like app dating and I go like, and they're going like, I'm going to try to keep the conversation like this, or I'm going to dress like that. And I'm like, no, go into that date and be your worst because that, because you want to be the kind of person, I mean, don't be your worst. I'm exaggerating, but you want to be the kind of person you're going to be throughout the relationship. Because if you have something about your personality, if you're an enormous nerd or you are the kind of person who likes to eat like a monster. Like, you want someone who loves you who is into that kind yeah, of thing. don't mask your basic personality. And that's easier said than done because that's not something we did in our first dates. We did a lot of hiding of who we were. We're, I mean, yeah, dates are awkward. That's I'm how so, it goes. I'm but, so glad but I don't I wish, have to do them. But I wish I had 
like revealed myself to you sooner rather than later. Uh, yeah. Well, it's like the the idea of well, if I went back to elementary school now, I would kill it. Yeah, yeah. Be, like if I went back to our first dates with the confidence in myself that I've gained from being in a relationship with you, yeah, those would be amazing dates. But it's just impossible. I remember when I let slip that I had an, a, a rather large action figure collection. <laughs> And you were like, that's rad. And that was a big game changer in those early days. It was like, oh, she thinks that's rad? Oh, I got to bring her over. Oh, and he did. (laughs) And he did. And it was, (laughs) not only did he have his action figures proudly on display, his entire ceiling was covered in movie posters. Oh, yeah. This is when I was living with my folks. Yeah. 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 In the basement. Yep. Good times. (laughs) Continue, Lisa. And obviously... This needs to be reciprocal. You should show your partner that you love them as a whole person and show your partner that you feel accountable for their happiness and so on. Violations of trust are inevitable, whether large or small, but then the repairs are met with urgency and importance. Eight Dates includes a list of the 10 most common ways people break trust. Not showing up on time. Not making their partner a priority not being there when their partner is hurting or sick, not contributing to the well-being of the family, me rather than we, me rather than we. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. Not keeping promises, keeping secrets, lying, humiliating or putting down partner in public or private, committing an act of emotional or physical infidelity, being physically violent. That's quite a spectrum of things from like, oh, I'm a little bit late to like, I am, I am hitting you with my hands and feet. But what I think all of these things have in common are um, a violation of expectation. Like you, like the, the first one, not showing up on time. You set the expectation that, hey, we're going to meet at this place at seven o'clock and the person's not there. And if it's a continuous problem, that means that they are not thinking of you at all. But maybe that person doesn't come from a background where punctuality is a priority. So they don't even know that you have that expectation yeah, for you. Yeah, it's a learned behavior. It is, it is. So what are you supposed to do when these expectations are violated and trust is broken? Eight Dates has a system for that. Number one, set a specific place and time to talk. Ooh, that might be tough if the person's issue is punctuality. Don't be late for that engagement. Well, that's what I'm saying. If they keep, like, that's something, that's an easy way to determine if that person is going to work for you or not. If if they are continually uh, ignoring your schedule that you have agreed upon, then, uh, and that's bothering you, you got to address that. Yeah, but we're two uh, on-time people. Number two, each partner names the feeling he or she experienced during the incident or break in trust without blame or criticism. Number three, the receiving partner listens without feedback or judgment. These are hard. Like yeah. it's hard to hear someone else's feelings and not be reactionary. Yeah. yeah. Especially if the intention is, I did not intend to hurt you and therefore you are incorrect by being hurt. Number four, each person describes his or her point of view about what happened during the incident without blaming or criticizing their partner while their partner only listens and tries to empathize. That's so important. Empathy is everything. Explain and examine, oh, this is number five. 
explain and examine any feelings that were triggered by the incident, but that were originally felt long before this relationship. So maybe like, hey, when I was five years old, uh, my dad was late picking me up to go to Disney World and I never saw him again, right? That could be an issue. Uh, Number six, each partner assesses how they contributed to the incident and holds himself or herself accountable. That's good. Seven, each apologizes and and accepts the other's apology. I think the idea of the apology as a step, like I don't think that an apology is necessarily like a step, but like a reasonable outcome to going like, I've violated this person's feelings because I didn't understand their expectations and now I feel bad. I think that's a like a natural conclusion to patching up, like to having a discussion like this. Sure. And then number eight, you make a plan together to prevent this from happening again. That's smart to, to go like, oh, let's, let's pick something besides punctuality. Like let's pick something like con Brad. <sighs> now Brad knows to check in with me. It's part of our process, checking in with me and going, make sure that you let me know what you want to look at. I have to be aware of where you are in space if you want to pause and look at something. That's really what it's about. It's like, uh, you know, you're going to a place together. You're not going there just to secure all the action figures you (laughs) want. You're going there to enjoy this experience as a couple. Right. So be with me. So be with your couple. Yeah, Yeah. Be with your person. Once trust has been properly established, then commitment can truly take place. Eight Dates says that what commitment really comes down to is resisting the possibility of other people. And I think that I would add for Rogue in particular is to resist the possibility of no people. Right, because isolation is her go-to move. That's right. So while Remy like has fallback like, he's like, if I can't have Rogue... I can have I, Chandra, I can have Belladonna, I can have any uh, gas station. He can have two random <laughs> girls in a convertible. He has lots of fallback options, but his first option, his first choice would be Rogue, where for Rogue, it feels like a lot of the time, her first choice is solitude. Commitment is a choice a person makes to generate trust with another person on a continuous basis. This occasionally calls for grand gestures like getting married, making financial decisions together, deciding to start a family or not, but the research in the Love Lab shows that it's the small daily acts that actually build the most satisfaction. That means anticipating and meeting your partner's needs, being vulnerable to your partner when it comes to your needs, and proving to each other every day that you value each other's happiness as much or more than your own. An example Eight Dates gives is putting down or turning your distraction, smartphone, book, television, down when your partner asks for your attention. I think other examples would be checking in with your partner when you're making plans, Texting your partner if you're hitting the coffee shop and asking if they want anything. We love to text throughout yes. the day just to check, just let, let each other know, hey, I'm thinking about you. What's going on? These things seem obvious to me, but maybe to other people, they're not. Maybe Rogue doesn't think, I should just, you know, text Remy, see what he's up to, make him know that I'm thinking of him. Maybe Remy doesn't think, maybe I shouldn't 
openly flirt with Storm as she's walking down the aisle during Scott and Jean's wedding. <laughs> And humiliating my date. One of the things that used to bug me early in our marriage is when you, Brad, oh. would uh, eat a meal, oh. without, like have lunch, and then not tell me. And that's like a weird expectation that I had that is like, now need, that we're married, all meals would be taken together. I just need to be told that stuff. It just was one of those things that just did not, uh, it did not occur to me, Lisa. But- now you do know that I kind of have the expectation. If I haven't heard that you're eating, I'm kind of expecting to eat at the same time. And you let me know. Yeah, you're also a scheduled eater. Like you have to eat at, you know, regular at 8 a.m., noon, 6 o'clock, where I can eat whenever and maybe I won't have a lunch. Maybe I won't have Brad a Brad is a camel. Like he'll <laughs> fill up and then he'll go for a couple of days. That's true. But we tend to eat most of our meals now together. That's right. Because it's how I want it. That's how you want it. That's what we're learning today. Adjust to your wife. Adjust to your wife. <laughs> that, that's not entirely true. I'm sure I've made adjustments to you, but I'm just real subtle about it. <laughs> what are the death knells of commitment? Woo, that's quite a transition. When a person in an unhappy couple chooses a secret confidant with whom they complain about their partner yeah. instead of talking about it with their partner, yeah. Scott and Emma. That yep. was the death knell of the commitment between Scott and Jean when Scott took Emma as his little confidant. Yeah. Hate to bring that up again. Scamma. Read our article on Adventures in Poor Taste. Plug, plug. <laughs> when a person threatens to leave, Rogue does this literally all of the time. At the end of every conversation, she's like, I can't be in a commitment. Right. That's going to yeah. hurt trust. And this is definitely going to come up when we talk about Antarctica. Yes. The last death knell of commitment is when a partner begins to compare negatively their partner to a real or imagined alternative partner. This practice breeds resentment as they fantasize about what the theoretical alternative partner would do to better meet their needs. I, is there a good example of that between Rogue and Remy? Because, like, Rogue doesn't really have anyone to compare. Well, against. I think that she kind of does that to herself by imagining an alternative partner, like herself as the alternative partner. Well, me without powers. Oh, uh, interesting. Me powered down is someone who's suitable for Remy, but not me myself. Yeah, or me with control. But when I don't have control, then uh, nothing we can't can be happen. together. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I had not. No, I hadn't thought about that at all. But that really isn't about her trust relationship with Remy. But that has more to do with her trust of herself. Yeah, she doubt. Yeah. yeah. As we discuss this first volume of Rogue and Gambit by Kelly Thompson, I think we should keep in the forefront of our minds the idea of trust and how trust is the oxygen for relationship commitment. Mm. I feel like that explains their cycle of... On again, off again. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay. All right. All right. Shall we do it then? Let's get into it. We're reading Rogan Gambit, issues one through five, entitled Ring of Fire, written by Kelly Thompson, illustrated by Pere Perez, colored by Frank DeMarada, lettered by Joe Caramana, and published between January and April of 2018. Here's the basic plot, courtesy of Goodreads. Thanks, Goodreads. Thanks, Goodreads. Everybody's favorite ex-couple is reunited, and boy, are they not happy about that. Kitty Pride must send Rogue and Gambit on an undercover mission to find a group of kidnapped mutants. What they discover on this mission will shock them. But will it also bring them closer together? 
It's a high stakes adventure caper that only the two hottest X-Men can deliver. Yeah, pretty good Goodreads. Not bad. Not I bad. think that uh, Gambit is excited from the beginning to be on this particular sure. mission with Rogue. <laughs> absolutely. Well, because that's his like go mode. He's always at excitement. When it comes to Rogue, yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you know who's also very excitable is Kelly Thompson, especially when she's dealing with her 90s obsession. Uh, she actually talked about it with Marvel.com right before the launch of the Rogue and Gambit follow-up, Mr. and Mrs. X. It's a really fun, nostalgic trip, and I recommend all our listeners give this interview a read. Uh, maybe that's something I should put in the show notes. Uh, must mark the timestamp right here, Brad. Uh, do I do that? Ah, I never do it. Uh, <laughs> but Thompson says the first floppy she ever read was Uncanny X-Men number 290 with that Wallace Patricio storm cover. I remember it well. From there, she went to X-Force number three, and then she took a fateful trip to the mall comic book shop to score a copy of the adjectiveless X-Men number one. I miss mall comic book shops. For those collecting at the time, we all remember where we were when we got X-Men number one. Shout out to Joe Gumbinger. May you rest in peace and your glorious Burke used bookstore and comics. Uh, the interviewer asks Thompson when she thinks of Marvel in the 90s, What's the first thing that comes to mind? And her answer is an immediate Rogan Gambit. This is her dream title to be working on. Asked what creators had an impact on her. And she says, all the big X stars, Jim Lee, Chris Claremont, Andy Kubert, Jay Lee, Fabian Nietzsche, Alan Davis, Larry Stroman, Mark Way, Joe Quesada. And I have to give credit to Fabian Nietzsche for single-handedly turning me around on Cyclops with X-Men number 44, a super smart character-driven issue to this day, it reminds me that it just takes one great story to turn someone around on a character. And that's what happened with me with her book about Rogan Gambit. Yes. Uh, I need to find X-Men number 44. I have never read that. I had jumped off X-Men before that point. I need to revisit it because I am a diehard Cyclops fan. Yeah, you are. Uh, what I love about this interview is when she talks about hanging on to all these little B stories regarding Rogan Gambit at the time. Obviously, all those little moments come back in her book and feed all the baggage between the characters. I'm so glad that we covered them in our first two Rogan Remy issues because it delivered some delicious context for this specific story. And it goes back to her point about elevating previous Material, stories. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so good. And from page one, you know you're in good hands, right? You t you flip the cover and it's a nine panel grid and we, we have just nine captions. If time is a circle, then everything happens at... And, you know, you get little images. You see Gambit screaming. You see Gambit and Rogue kissing. You see Rogue screaming back. You see uh, uh, Rogue uh, with Gambit's hand coming to her lips. You see them fighting in, like, a full-on battle mode. And then the last panel, the ninth panel, is Rogue and Remy kissing. That's where we get the caption at. You turn the page. Double page splash. Rogue and Remy beating on each other. And the final word is once. So the phrase is, if time is a circle, then everything happens at once. And then that at once is this huge, like collected mural, like every memory is just being shattered behind them. It's absolutely stunning. What a way to open a comic. And establish a thesis statement. Like when you have commitment to somebody, you're committing to them, their past, your past, and it's all part of the same 
narrative whole. Right, right. But you go like, oh my gosh, what is happening? What is happening? Why is their past shattering behind them? Why are they punching each other? But then you turn the page and we go to uh, Ciudad Pariso before we go back in time. So we're going to have to read this book to catch up to those first two pages, our first three pages. And you want to read quickly because again, like what a tremendous impact those first three pages are. But the next two pages set up the plot. We meet some faceless mutants. We don't know who they are. They're being pursued. They're being chased. They're being captured. And then we turn the page once more and we're back at the danger room at the X-Mansion. Gambit walks into the control room where Aurora is running a program and he's like, hey, Stormy. And she's like, "Uh, don't call me Stormy. And he's like, I don't care. Who is fighting old school sentinels in the danger room? Like how passe is that? And she's like, well, it's rogue. And he's like, oh, well, in that case, deal me in. And so he enters the danger room where Rogue is just chilling with Psylocke and Pixie and having a little girl time. And she's like, what are you doing here? And Aurora is like, hey, you wanted me to be throwing <laughs> yeah. unexpected things, you know, after you. And she's like, ugh, Gambit, me and my big mouth. And Gambit replies, I won't stand you insulting that mouth. Legitimately Clever line from Gambit. <laughs> Super hot thing to say. And there's all this fighting and the usual banter. And Gambit tackles Rogue out of the way of the Sentinel's hand, despite being asked not to interfere by Rogue. And she's a flying And brick. Psylocke. She's taking care of those Sentinels all by herself, no problem. She's totally fine. But then... We get like a deja vu of the Mackie minis. (laughs) But this one makes more sense because Gambit did the tackling. So it makes sense that he's on top. And I love the younger X-Men looking on and going like, ooh, Mm. what's their relationship status? Psylocke's got all the deets. That's right. She loves stirring that muck. (laughs) What I'd like to do now is read these last three panels of this session in the danger room, because this is the thesis statement of this entire volume. What, so, you, want, you want to like go back and forth? Yeah, like read it like scripty style. All right, am I Gambit or am I Rogue? Uh, I guess that's up to you. I um, I want to be Rogue because I don't want to do the Cajun. Uh, well, I'm going to be Gambit then and not do the Cajun. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> Though I have been known to try an accent in the past. You have. I'm not in that mind space. All right, let's do this. Okay. We'd tell you what the page numbers were, but uh, Marvel hates numbering their pages in their trade paperbacks. Which I, an issue I solve by numbering my tabbies. You sure do. All I right, do. so let's see. Okay, okay, okay. You hear that, Cher? Hot. Heat was never our problem, Remy. You picked the training program, didn't you, Petite? So what? Seems to me like maybe you're yearning for the past a bit. A, a simpler time, maybe? Not the past. And then she totally gives him the hand. And then you go, say your line. Do I have another line? Oof. Oof. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I forgot to do my efforts. Um, but I love the fact that this time she determines the end of the conversation and she doesn't have this completely confusing and a weak punch the floor in moment. But you think that's the thesis of the entire book? That she hates the past and Gambit loves it. So a rejection of their past to Gambit is like a rejection of him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's an interesting, yeah. I had not really like 
pulled that scene out of the entire book, but I, I, I see what you're saying. I, th I think you're right there. And you're certainly right about how she doesn't want to talk about the past and he loves to revisit it. And that goes into that whole conversation when they finally get to the island and the way that this island works is that it's supposed to be like this, I don't know, hoity-toity, psycho... It's like thought. a rehab slash couples retreat. Yeah, and one of the aspects is that they have to meet with a therapist and work through their problems. And one of the first areas that they start is how they first met and the way she remembers it or the way she chooses to remember their first meeting versus how he wants to hold on to his first meeting. That's like the, their core issue there. But remember in our past when we were talking about the first experiments of the love lab, what did they do? They took couples aside and asked them yeah, to yeah. tell the narrative of their relationships. And that was the most deciding factor of whether the couple would stay together or not. The Gottman Institute claims that how a couple tells their narrative can predict to 94% accuracy which couples will stay together and which couples will divorce. So I think it's really super meta that we read this Kelly Thompson comic on comic book couples counseling, and then we watch Rogue and Gambit do couples counseling using the tactics of the Gottman Institute. Yeah, so rad. Think how I threw up my, my wee fists in the air and just started pumping when I started yeah. reading this yeah, volume. Yeah, yeah, and then, so you get those two diverging points. And I guess that, should we talk about what those, uh, meet, their meet cutes are from their points of view? Before we get to that, oh. I, I want to touch on the conversation they have on the beach while they're walking to their first session with Dr. Grand. And I guess we should also note that this was an assignment given to them by Kitty uh, because, you know, these mutants are disappearing and why not get our most favorite ex-couple to investigate this? And of course, Kitty could go with Colossus as Rogue points out, but uh, she doesn't want to deal with her own problems. She that that's that's on Gambit. And She's like that's the, to deal with. that's the good part of being the boss yeah. that yeah. I don't have to assign <laughs> myself the assignments where I have to bring my actual uh, trauma. Yeah, yeah, but, brokenness. But the scene you're about to talk about this is this is a key scene. So so set us up. So um, Rogue is trying to game out the emotions that are going to come up in the actual therapy session. And Gambit stops her and is like, I, I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's like, what? And he's like, you're going to say that we're broken and we're never going to be able to be fixed. So don't get your hopes up, essentially. And she's like, what? Like, we have all of this baggage. And he's like, yeah, but it's been super hard on me to carry this baggage alone. Yeah, yeah. And he he accuses her of just dropping it and, yeah. and leaving it on him to drag their baggage everywhere. It's your fault. And she's like, well, why don't you just drop it? And he's like, you know why. Like, I'm in I love, love with you. you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not ready to give up on us, and I'm never going to be ready to give up on us. And she has given up on them 
time after time after time, saying that their relationship is an impossibility. It's literally what she's doing right now. Right. But what's so great about this gambit versus previous gambits that we've encountered in the comics is he does not feel like, um, you know, uh, because of his masculinity, he's in pursuit mode. He's not in hunter mode. Like it is approaching Gambit from his feelings Mm -hmm. and you sympathize where he is, where in the past, I feel like with the Mackie minis, with the adjectiveless X-Men stuff that we've covered on the show, I came off going like Gambit, like slow down. Well, he seemed, he, when he would, share a line it wasn't a line about how much he cherishes her her mouth or how much you know his lines are like i want you in my life as a partner like it's not so he's not a hundred percent pure sexuality right 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 but i think what's important in this scene is for rogue the number one issue is the baggage like they have is to, the past. It's is what we've past, been talking right. about. Like we just said, the thesis statement is her past. She cannot shake it. She needs it. She can't let it go. So when Dr. Grand, unbeknownst to them, starts loosening some of their baggage, she is in pure bliss mode. Right. Because Dr. Grand is literally removing painful memories from their heads. Right. So now they're in session with Dr. Grant and take a look at their body language. They're just on opposite sides of the couch. Remember how with creating the narrative, it's very important that you look at the couple's body language because that's a huge indication. Rogue's got her arms crossed. She's on the other end. Gambit is menacingly massaging his wrist. (laughs) And uh, Dr. Grand essentially is like, so what brings you two in? And you flip the page. And then there is this splash page of Rogue and Gambit arguing. And she's pointing at him with her gloved hand. And he's his hands are up, angry but defensive. And we see all of these bubbles of their past. Like here up in this upper left-hand corner, we see... Rogue, Rogue all dolled up for their first date that got yeah, and then just to the right of it we see the 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 date that right. gets uh, interrupted by Omega Red. We see Rogue kissing Magneto. We see Rogue kissing Deadpool. We see Rogue kissing Magneto. We see uh, Remy kissing Joel from the James Asmus run. Like yeah, it's all these points of contention, and Doctor Grant just cannot deal with it. She's like, hold up, let's. Let's calm down. Let's ease up just a little bit. That's bad news if you, like, shock the couple's <laughs> the therapist, therapist with how uh, discontent well, you are. you know, to be fair to all ex-couples, they got a lot of crazy stories that a lot of people would not be used to. But Dr. Grant actually handles it pretty well. And because it's a mutant retreat, I'm sure she's heard all kinds of crazy stories. But she's like, well, let's just go back to the beginning. Let me hear your meet cute. Right, and he has one, I have another. What? How can that be? And then Rogue tells her story first, and it's straight out of Uncanny X-Men issues 278 through 280, which are known as the Muir Island Saga, and it involves the Shadow King uh, taking control of the personalities of certain X-Men who he can control when he's around, but when he's not around, they're just kind of left out there to do what they want to do, but their personalities have been tainted by his darkness. Mm. And 
her first meeting with Gambit is she she's stumbling out of the Shadow King's control. She's wearing very little clothes. Mm-hmm, which uh, Kelly Thompson points out. Yes, yes. They've been shredded. Conveniently. Conveniently. And Gambit offers his uh, uh, New Orleans jacket. His, his tr- trench coat. His trench coat, his noir coat to cover her up. And she kindly accepts. And she mentions that she's looking for Mystique who is her mother, yes. and he offers to help. Yes. And then he was like, hey, hey, got pretty hot and heavy last night. And she's like, what? What happened? Did we have sex? And he's and he's like, we did not. And he, she's relieved. And he's like, how dare you be relieved? Yeah. And I guess the impression there is that when Rogue was under the control of the Shadow King, she didn't have full absorption powers. So they could have touched and not Well, she's killed. not sure. But I think but that- But we know later, because when we see- his side of the story, there was physical contact. While they didn't have sex, they had kissed. Right. And she did not drain him of his life a la Cody. Right. But you see that idea enter her mind, I think, because when she finds out that they had successfully made out, she's like, I've got to tell Professor X. And in her usual rogue fashion, she just kind of zips off, leaving Gambit standing there going like, why aren't we making out right now? And the book interrupts the session to give this little adventure story of Rogue and Remy in the ducks of this building doing a little James Bond investigating. But I just want to go right to Yeah, I think that's a good idea. All right, so from Gambit's point of view, the way he tells of their first meeting is when they were both on Team Shadow King. They were both infected with his darkness. And even though they were on the same side, for whatever reason, when they see each other, Gambit's like, hey, you look good. We should fight. (laughs) And then they start punching each other. And it seems fairly evenly matched, actually, until he uses his kinetic explodey powers and he explodes something behind her that kind of projects her body into him, and then they immediately start making out. Right, right. Smooching real good. And so what's interesting about this knowledge, I I, I wish I had known it reading the Adjectiveless X-Men and reading the Mackie minis, because it is key to know that Gambit's first encounter with Rogue ended up in a makeout session in which he did not die. So he knows that there is a way that they can touch, that they can be physical together. So knowing that, it makes his more predatory nature in the adjectiveless X-Men books, uh, like not less predatory, but... uh, uh, Well, she's saying it's a tremendous risk to you. And he's saying, I don't think it is. It's worth the risk. He's consenting to that risk. And so it doesn't make him look like such a loon, I guess is what I'm saying in those early issues. But as they're jumping out of the the duct, Rogue says that she hates that memory. Yeah. She specifically hates the way he remembers their meeting. And Gambit is like... For me, it was true love. And for you, it was mind control. Right. And she goes on to say, like, I don't want our first physical contact to be this weird cosmic threesome with the shadow king. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, how could you not understand that, right? And but But she's like, she tries to, like, poke at him going, like, well, it just goes to show that your libido is so strong (laughs) that it can puncture the control of the shadow king. And he's like... (laughs) And that's not how he sees it. He says, no, 
you are so strong. My love for you is so strong. It's such a great moment. It's such a great moment. But it really, like, it goes highlights to show their their differences. Their pers- their different perspectives. Yeah. And I think there are actually a lot of couples who have different treat, like, have different ways that they like to content to contextualize the beginning of their relationship. I think about couples who like meet on hookup apps or meet and like you know. One night, one no. I'm talking about people who have like one night stands, Uh or I'm thinking of like my sister met her husband. They've been married for like I don't know, 14 years, 15 years, but they met online when it was still super creepy to meet someone (laughs) online. So they would come up with completely like alternate ways they would sell their narrative. Yeah, yeah. They, like, did, they wouldn't leave that's a little that different. introduction. But, I mean, times have changed so much since the uh, early aughts. The way we like to say our meet cute is, like, when I met you for the first time at Barnes & Noble, I don't have a specific memory Yeah, and of I that. do. This is actually very similar to the Rogue Gambit situation, no Shadow King involved. But I remember the day I met you. Mm-hmm. It was my first day at work, and you were at the customer service desk at the Barnes & Noble. Uh, but I was just some newbie, and you don't remember me at all. And I had been working there for a couple of months and uh, what so, I like yeah. to say is, like, Brad had, like, these enormous mutton chops at the time. I sure did. Like and- Wolverine <laughs> or Chester A. Arthur. And so my little line I say is, like, I don't remember meeting Brad because Brad had mutton chops. And that's the facial hair that makes you invisible to women. <laughs> Ouch. Accurate. Ouch. So uh, real quick, when did we first meet in your mind then? I don't have a first memory. Oh, really? I do oh. have a memory of, like... I began to establish a routine with you because you worked in the music, music department. department. Yep. So you were kind of like sectioned off. I was the music manager. That's ah. right. And so you were there all of the time. I was only part time, but I always made a point of walking past the music department. Hi, Brad. And leaving when I would leave, I'd go, bye, Brad. So I always made a point of like making you part of my day if you were in the music department. That's pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. Pretty good first meeting. I like yours. I like yours. Thanks. Well, no mutton true. chops. No mutton chops. Those came <laughs> off. There were a couple of uh, uh, quick edits we did to your look before we properly started Yeah, you dating. changed my glasses. <laughs> yeah, so you had the mutton chops. Those had to go. And then you also would <laughs> slick your hair back yeah. every day with like gel or yeah, something. Mark Tina told me to stop yeah. doing that. You didn't tell me to stop. No, doing I didn't that. tell you, but it was it was important yeah. that that changed because yeah, that, that was a very bad choice. Bad look, bad look. Slicked black hair and uh, and then shots, um, you and had big wide glasses, yeah. huge '80s style glasses. They looked like my dad's aviators. Um, yeah, no, those had to go. We actually went glasses shopping, and you chose the frames, which are very similar to the ones I'm currently wearing. That's right. And we still have the, the frames I picked out for Brad on our That's first true. date. That's true. Okay, uh, nice sidetrack to Brad and Lisa time. Back yeah. to Rogue and Gambit. After their therapy session, they're skulking around. They're trying to figure out what is the deal with this place. Something is not right. And they find a secret corridor. They find well, a secret- Well, they get blasted into a secret corridor because we see the mutants from the beginning of the book again. And they're like, what are you doing skulking around? Let's and, fight. And they attack. They get blasted into the secret corridor. And they come face to face with all these mutants on tables. And all the mutants kind of look melty. They look like skinny clay faces. The yeah. Batman villain turn the page and they are being observed by 
Dr. Grand and this new villain, Lavish. Who we saw the silhouette of in the first issue. But that's the end. And when we turned the page to issue number three, they're back in the therapy session. And look at that body language. Uh, let's start with uh, Gambit is wearing his shirt completely open. I was going to start with how Rogue is wearing her shirt completely open. It doesn't need to be open because it's transparent. <laughs> they're dressed for the beach. But they're, they're not on opposite ends of the couch. They are closer together. Of course, when Dr. Grand starts to inquire about uh, overcoming their difficulties, they both mention Antarctica at the same time and their heads droop. Yeah, she asks what's their main issue. They say trust. And she's like, where does this violation of trust go back to? And it's Antarctica. Done. So Antarctica, Lisa. Give us some context, Brad. So I don't have all the details because this was coming from a point in time in which I was not reading Uncanny X-Men. Gasp. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I have not read every issue. Listeners, if I say anything stupid here, uh, please correct me. I know you will. Uh, but this apparently was revealed in Uncanny X-Men number 350, in which in Antarctica, uh, we have Gambit and Rogue, and Gambit is being tried by the Shi'ar, and specifically Eric the Red, who I think actually turns out to be Magneto. I'm not 100% sure. Again, correct me. Uh, he's being tried because he was involved in the mutant massacre or the Morlock massacre, which was this huge event orchestrated by Mr. Sinister in which the Marauders slaughtered tons and tons of mutants. And it was revealed that Gambit had a part in assembling the Marauders. He was hired by Mr. Sinister to get that team together. And when Rogue learned this, obviously she was quite upset. And that was when they broke up for, I think, the second time. And this is after they've had physical love. Jesus, Gambit. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot, right? Uh, it, it's it's like finding out that your loved one helped uh, a, a couple of Nazis uh, assemble, like a Nazi hit squad. Like, the way that it's presented in the book... In Rogue and Gambit, in Rogue Kelly and Thompson, Gambit, yeah. Like, my presumption is, was... Like after this encounter where their powers are suppressed, when her powers came back, maybe some of his memories came to her. And I was like, he was doing some janky stuff in New Orleans. But now, like now when I hear what actually happened, that he was he took part in the genocide of mutants like I am. Utterly floored. It's fascinating. And again, I don't know exactly how this was eventually retconned or, you know, uh, explained away. Maybe he was under some kind of mind control, hopefully. And and that's the beauty of comic books, right? And that's the frustration of comic books is writers come in, they need to take these characters to new heights, new extremes, uh, plunge Gambit into his darkest depth so he can crawl back out again. But that's a really dark depth. And And the idea of the X-Men welcoming him then back into the fold, let alone Rogue being able to accept him back into her heart despite his crimes. So what happens is to have these characters last for, you know, uh, 70 years, 
you have to pick and choose what you remember, mm-hmm. right? Like we tend not to think about how Scott Summers treated Madeline and their baby when he reformed with X Factor, right? Oh man. We 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 tend to just skip over that so that we could get to the stuff that we really want, which is Scott and Jean together. Well, how do we get Scott and Jean together? Well, Maddie has to be a clone and she has to be a goblin queen with access to the inferno, right? And in league with demons. Like that's how we get beyond that. And so how does Rogue and Gambit come together after this revelation with Mr. Sinister? Again, I don't have all the details. I don't know how that was explained away. I don't know how he made amends for that life or what have you. But what Kelly Thompson is doing in Rogue and Gambit is acknowledging all these insane things that have been in their past and finding a way to filter them into a new context and maybe sanding some of the edges I mean, this is more than like sanding. This is like full on rock tumbler. (laughs) Let's press the carbon, make it a diamond kind of thing. Like, I appreciate the lack of specificity in this moment because I do think like I find it jarring. Like I am the knowledge of the marauders. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the writers who came after that and Kenny X-Men may have uh, done have started the sanding. Uh, of that revelation a little bit. I hope so. But then it makes me look at Rogue's response and she seems to take a lot of responsibility for this being this huge wedge in their relationship. And and the way that she states it is reliving his past bad decisions and then I made my own bad decisions she calls this one of the biggest mistakes of her life of her leaving him abandoning him yeah and um she goes on to say like can we even go on like can this wound that I created this um undermining of the trust that I created how can you go on after that and to me, I go like, Rogue, you're being pretty tough on yourself, considering. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me drop a Transformers sound effect right here, and then I'm going to jump into Wikipedia real quick. That is a solid idea. So real quick, let me just go through what Wikipedia says about this moment in time. Yes, please. Um, all right, so... Uh, Eric the Red was Magneto. I had that right. Ding, ding, ding. Victory point for Brad. Now, this is interesting. Okay. During the trial, Rogue was forced to kiss Gambit, okay? Uh Which allowed her to absorb his memories of those events. So she played an active role in exposing his atrocity, which is interesting. And also then she is hit with the emotions that he was feeling during that atrocity. And then after that, when her memories faded, when that psychic absorption ended, Rogue did go back out and try to find Gambit. And during this time, he went off and he was doing his own little, um, you know, heists and adventures. Okay. Like we saw with the James Asmus run. Right. He does go on to like partner up with Rogue and Shadowcat and in, in dealing with like the, the gem of Sidorak or however you say that, the juggernaut gem that powers him. Uh, and he is asked to rejoin the X-Men and he agrees to do that. And the way Wikipedia phrases it is out of his own self-respect and because he wants to get back with Rogue. Or, okay. You know, so. I, don't I, know. I mean, like it's our <laughs> our personal philosophy, yours and mine, is the belief in redemption. Once you deal with Nazis, oh, oh, 
we do believe in I redemption. Do, yes, I believe in and redemption. Second chances. And second chances, yes. But absolutely. But dude. That's, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Remy. There is also a little bit here in Wikipedia talking about how he did manage to save one girl from the Marauders, so he saved a single life. So even So one step forward, 17,000 <laughs> large steps back. It's I don't know lot. the number. It's a lot. But okay, so there's Gambit's dark secret. Well, uh, I'm just going to have to put a pin in this emotionally and process it not on this podcast. Well, and that's the thing is I'm going to need to like dig in a little bit as well. And listeners, I know you have a better understanding of what went down in Antarctica and the fallout of Antarctica. And I mean, Apple J, I know you're listening. Yes. You gotta, you gotta make this okay for us. <laughs> and we'll revisit this. If, if we learn more about this on our final episode of Rogue and Gambit, we, we gotta like, we gotta make some sense of, of that revelation. Cause whoa. I feel like, just for my well-being, we we need another Transformers transition. All right, I'll drop one in right here. Following that moment, Dr. Grand says something pretty revealing, like, uh, sounds like this is a memory you want to keep, but you don't necessarily want all of the emotional baggage right. surrounding that memory. And they're like, yeah. yeah. And at this point... Like, if you look at them, they've gone full-on dopey. Like, with with love for each other. Um, There's some chemical changes going on. Right. They have very blissful expressions on their face. And at this point, we know, like, something... Is up. Extraordinarily hanky is going on. Yeah, yeah. But following that session, they... Uh, have some, make a little love. This is maybe big ups to... Pere Perez, yeah. That, the, like the hottest panel of all Rogue and Gambit history. Where they're in the water. Half submerged. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's up on the dock and he comes up and comes in for a real passionate smooch. And apparently her power is so low at this point that when he touches her, all he feels is kind of a, a low electric buzz. Yeah, yeah. And it's super hot. <laughs> yeah, He's yeah, way yeah. into it. It's a good moment. And like, as a reader, and as someone who has become a real fan of their coupling, you know, I am here to ship Gambit and Rose. Oh yeah, chemistry all over the place. When we get to that page and they finally hook up, it is like a fist pumping moment. You're like, yes, about time. It's going to work. Yeah. But Rogue seems to be having some reservations, not about hooking up, but reservations about. This, something's off. Something's off. And she doesn't necessarily want to resist it yeah. because. Why should she, we investigate this? She is so profoundly happy and she doesn't want to give that up for them. Yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not investigate. Let's just enjoy the bliss that we have. Love the one you're with. Let's just keep on keeping on. But no, they're X-Men. They can't do that. Yeah, and they get a text from Kitty, and Kitty's oh, Kitty. like, hey, I've got some coordinates. And those coordinates take them to the hospital where they see a bunch of people who have like some kind of dementia, amnesia symptoms, and they're like, This is not good. But for the rest of this comic, Rogue continuously struggles with going, do I deserve to not have my powers anymore and have a happy life? Is there a way, 
even before she knows exactly what's up with the golems and how they are kind of housing her emotional baggage and her memories, like she is going, how can I negotiate keeping some of this bliss? Can it be done? Yeah. You know, what's also interesting about that is if you go back to our conversation around the Mackie minis and the moment in which rogue is forced to consider a life without her powers when Condra offers her that opportunity. And I said that it wasn't done sufficiently in the, right. that book. And then here comes Kelly Thompson to do it perfectly. I And she absolutely nails it and makes it so emotional and relatable. Yeah. Relatable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love though that, Gambit's optimism is is always present. He always has the faith that now that we've felt this, we can find our way back to it and we can find our way back to it the right way. Yeah. And this this kind of persistence is something that in other books I found severely unattractive, but in this book... But it also goes back to his idea of their first meeting because he knows when they first met, one of the first things they did was physically touch and kiss. And even if that becomes difficult or supposedly impossible in the future, it's happened before, so it can happen again. Yeah, and so he's constantly f- bucking up against her kind of fatalistic, I can never have love attitude. Yeah, he doesn't do doubt. Gambit doesn't do doubt. Jumping to the end of issue three, when they finally get back to that lab and that room, now on the tables, they see all these clones or what they think are clones of themselves, various gambits, various rogues. I love how like when they return to that lab, like the idea of clones doesn't really bother them, but they're like, how did they get our clothes? Yeah, because they're not clones, they're golems. I know, but just like, and you don't get to the golems in the same issue. And so like, I remember going like, why is that a revelation? <laughs> because clothes are so important to X-Men Lisa. Costumes, they indicate the time periods of your favorite books. So when you see like Gambit in his yellow spandex, you're like, that's my favorite Gambit. But at the same time, them going like, it's weird that, they're wearing my outfit from that day by the lake. Yeah, right, 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 right. Like, because, for them to point it out, I'm yeah, just like, okay. Like, oh, why would anyone be interested in the boysenberry outfit? Uh, well, there's a reason. There's a yeah, because she's super hot she's in super that hot outfit. In that boysenberry outfit. Uh, now, it's like the big brawl time, right? Because those golems come alive, and they attack Rogue and Gambit, and they start fighting their doubles, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens is Gambit, knocks the block off of one of them. and One of rogues. One of rogues. And he is attacked by a memory, one of her memories. And the memory he's attacked by is X-Men number 30, Gene and Scott's wedding, and the garter belt. Right. And not only does he have access to the visuals, but he has the access to her actual... Emotions. Inner inner monologue to herself. Yeah, and her point of view. Yeah, and and she describes, like, she, she re- describes feeling so, like, utterly in love with him despite her best interests, her, her calling him the most handsome snake in the garden. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she's just so, like, he's floored by how 
utterly head over heels she was during this entire period where she was resisting him so aggressively yeah. and rejecting him repeatedly. Right, and so that memory fades, that experience fades. He goes to Rogue and says, like, watch out, something's going to happen when you punch a gambit. And she's like, oh, what? And she punches the hell out of that gambit, and then a rush of memories from him flood into her head. And it is a scene from... Uh, one of the uncanny Avengers moments back during the Marvel now when she was hanging out with the Avengers and he is really hurt by the fact that uh, he was not invited onto the team. Well, it the reason he's not invited onto the team was Rogue was the one who originally suggested him because she was already an Avenger but then when Cap was like, hey, no. is he a trustworthy guy? She's like, no, <laughs> probably not. Yeah. And so... Um, she gets to experience his hurt, his, his true hurt. hurt. But then also, this is a moment of doubt for him where he goes like, maybe Rogue is right. Maybe we cannot work as a couple. And when Rogue um, kind of... Uh, comes out of this memory she is weeping yeah so it's such a great concept it's so good because it all ends up building to this big time brawl where what they've got to do is destroy all the golems but in the process regain all their baggage and right all the pain and awfulness with it and rogue is like fighting it tooth and nail the yeah, entire yeah. time like gambit is like you should really be fighting a little harder and she's just like ah uh, and, and she's trying to edit. Yeah. She's like trying to go like, well, I just, uh, let's avoid this one. So we get to the fourth issue and it opens with the big splash page from issue one. And we now realize what was happening way back when is that they are punching on each other so that they can regain their past selves or and, their and whole selves. As well as their powers. As well as their powers. Um, and, I love the the quote that Kelly Thompson uses. She says, you could not step twice into the same river. And that idea has been in my mind since Swamp Thing. This idea of like, you are never the same person. As soon as you are able to regret a past experience or to feel bad for a wrongdoing you've done, you're different. Mm. You're not that person anymore. Mm. And mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. though they're mm -hmm. having this these moments of profound intimacy of seeing each other's deepest thoughts, and there are times where I could I wish I could go like, Brad, be in my head right now and and feel everything I'm feeling. Like hear the thoughts that I can't seem to express with my mouth. Like that's like profound intimacy. But then getting that snapshot of Gambit where he's going like, I really, I mean, I I could use a promotion. You know, I would love to be an Avenger. <laughs> like he's not, he's not that Gambit anymore. No, no, he's not. He's and she's not. not that rogue right, anymore. Right. But they are still necessary to who they are today. That's right. Cause and, it informs who you right. are. You can't just get rid of that stuff. Yeah. You can't just accept the bliss of ignorance. Yeah. Our, our narratives are cumulative. Yeah. Yeah. 
So then what happens after that is they've taken care of all the Rogan Gambit golems. They're fully powered, though they do contain some of each other's powers, which I find super fun. Super fun. And Rogue goes after the other golems, all the other mutant golems that are around her that are attacking. And she decimates them and gains all of their powers. And she comes floating down from the sky and she looks like this ultimate mutant liger. (laughs) She's just so rad looking. And you realize that Rogue is a tremendous mutant. Like, that's that's Omega-level stuff if you had access to that. Absolutely. She looks completely, like, gorgeous and terrifying. Uh, yeah. and, but I love what she says. So at this point, she realizes that um, Dr. Grand is a golem. Of lavish. Of, of lavish. And she destroys Dr. Grand and sees this background where she had become a mutant for the first time and she was able to split herself in two and to make the burdens of being a mutant lighter. It goes back to that idea of like when uh, Rogue and Gambit were walking to their first session and going like, you know, like our baggage, our relationship baggage has gotten a lot heavier, Rogue, since you stopped carrying it and I'm carrying around the baggage for Uh, both of uh, us. So good. This like... Charmaine, who is Dr. Grand uh, and Lavish, Charmaine splits herself in two and now the baggage is lighter. Yeah, yeah. And what a great character. What a great villain, quote unquote. But right? in having that experience, she has this, uh, Rogue has this profound compassion now for, for, for Lavish. Yeah. And, and what um, happens is when she ends up smashing lavish the cloaked figure you realize that lavish is also a golem and we have maybe not seen the real charmaine yeah yeah Ah, so good kelly thompson high five high five i did make a note of this one quote right before she destroys lavish rogue says i also believe in mercy and redemption which says a lot about her relationship with gambit considering that he yeah yeah genocide oopsie for myself and for others, and I, it's going to save your life today. Mm, 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 mm. So that's comics. I love right? that. That's, that's that's why I love Star Trek. You know, like we can be better. We we don't have to submit to our most basic instincts, our senses of revenge. Rogue is such an awesome hero in that moment. You, like. Give me all the rogue statues. I want to put them all over our apartment. Oh, I love her. I, I, I like this book has made me profoundly love her. I know. It's so great. I'm so glad that we covered this couple. Me too. So closing off this particular volume, uh, rogue has returned to her regular shape. Um, Gambit is now fully Gambit. He doesn't have any more of her powers. powers. And, they say goodbye to Theo and Janine, who have also been restored because their their golems have also been destroyed. And then um, Rogue and Gambit have one final walk on the beach. Rogue starts to apologize again for that memory that she experienced and that hurt that she caused Gambit. And Gambit is like, Rogue, like you don't have to apologize anymore. And she's like, no, it's it's necessary. And I'm going to do my best to read from the book again. We know that I am barely literate. Here we go. 
<laughs> Brad has to be so patient because I like get ready for nine thousand edits. Oh, no, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna just barrel on through do this. It, do it. We I gotta finish you. this up. It's getting long because it's okay. So now I'm rogue. Yeah, I got it. Because it's only now, after experiencing all we've been through, all at once, that I see it's all the same. You and me are forever. I run from you because I'm afraid of forever. I fight every day for everyone's future but my own. My own future terrifies me, always has. That first day we met was so messed up. Everything was a mess from the first moment to the last. What it means is that there's never going to be a perfect time for us. I can't wait for everything to line up and make sense. It was messed up then, it's messed up now, and it will be messed up always. But I'll take messed up with you anytime, Remy LeBeau. I'm going to, like, I'm all choked choked up. up. (laughs) I know. It's so good. It's so good. And also, you did that in one sitting, Lisa. Congratulations. I did. I did. Um, Um, And then, of course, there's, like, a little ploy at the end. Rogue, I got to ask you something important right on the page. Turn the page. Turn the page. Rogue, how do you feel about cats? Oh, yeah. And that's... That's a like a reference to a Kate Beaton uh, two page comic that I had never seen before. Uh, but again, uh, Apple J, you get your second shout out on one episode. Uh, she tweeted those pages to us, and uh, it's canon where uh, Rogue one day broke a vase and uh, that belonged to Professor that belonged X. Belonged to Professor X, and he was so mad, and he came storming after or wheeling after Rogue, and she picked up a little kitty, absorbed the kitty's cuteness powers, and. Professor X couldn't stay mad at poor Rogue. If I had that power to absorb cat powers, no kitty would be safe. <laughs> no kitty would be safe. And then, of course, they end on, uh, we got we to gotta find that weird electricity thing again, because that was hot. That was and I'm like, hot. I agree. What I an agree. amazing trade paperback. I'm going to, I'm hugging it right yeah, now. I love this book. It's one of my book. favorite stories that we've covered over the last year of this podcast. Like, I, I, it's truly special. And I knew it was going to be good because I was a big fan of Kelly Thompson. And, you know, I've enjoyed our previous episodes on Rogan Gambit, but nothing has come close to the power of this comic. And really, it's Kelly Thompson who sold me on them as a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Same, same. So, Lisa, that brings us to the point of the podcast where we talk about what have we learned about ourselves, about Rogan Gambit, while covering this Kelly Thompson arc. I think that I've learned that, well, from Doctors Gottman, I learned that trust is just like everything else in a relationship. It's a practice and it's an active choice. And every moment is an opportunity to generate more of that good relationship oxygen, that good commitment oxygen of meeting your partner's expectations of anticipating your partner's needs. And from this Rogan Gambit comic, it's a good reminder that even when you and your partner are sharing an experience and you feel fully there together, you're still living two separate narratives. Mm -hmm. 
And the most important thing you can do in those moments is share those innermost thoughts. Yeah. And and that is an act of trust as well. Yeah. Being vulnerable yeah. and going yeah. like, hey, in this moment, it can be a moment of bliss. And I go, in this moment, I'm feeling such profound gratitude for you. Yeah. Or in a moment of irritation and annoyance, just going like, man, I love you, sweetheart, but right now you are just getting on my last nerve. Like, just keeping, like, keeping, you will never, you will never be able to a thousand percent merge narratives with your partner. But what you can do every day in a relationship is do what you can to close that gap. Right. And I think what we've been talking about these last three weeks or last three episodes, I wish it was last three weeks, uh, <laughs> these last three episodes is we've been talking about sharing. We've been talking about uh, baggage and, you know, the who we were before we met each other and how those past stories have made us the person we are today. And for me, I feel like while it is incredibly important to unload your narratives, your stories, your past to your loved one, it's equally important when you receive those stories, when you receive those narratives, to truly try to put your headspace in your partner's headspace, mm -hmm. which does not necessarily align free, with yours. Yeah. And judgment-free. Judgment-free. Yeah. Empathy, 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 empathy. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. very, very hard. And it's something that it doesn't stop, like you're saying, it's a practice. You have to continually reevaluate how you are sharing each other's narratives. And it's like a game of ping pong. You're constantly volleying for each other's attention, yeah. volley, volleying for each other's support. And it's all wrapped up in emotion. Yes, and sometimes you'll drop the ball. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's okay. You just got to pick it back up again. That's right. Yeah, yeah. All right, so... That does it. We got through Rogue and Gambit by Kelly Thompson, Pere Perez, and the Marvel gang. I have such a warm, fuzzy feeling right good. now. It feels good. Hey, do you feel the electricity, the mild electricity of my touch? That's static shock. <laughs> it's very dry here. It's very dry right now. Uh, so next week, we are getting into the good stuff. Uh, we're More getting, of the good we're stuff. We're getting further into the good stuff. We're sticking with Rogue and Remy. And we're sticking with Kelly Thompson, and we are going to read the rest of her run on these characters, which is not one trade paperback. It is two trade paperbacks. It's Mr. and Mrs. X, volumes one and two. Rogue and Remy, get married. Yay! Somebody's getting married, Muppet reference. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's going to do it. Get those trade paperbacks. Get to reading. We'll meet you back next week. Lisa. Yes, my love. Our listeners. They want to track you down online. Where can they do that? Where can they send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. I feel like I've violated a lot of Twitter trust because I have not tweeted it's been a in while. days. We've noticed, Lisa. We've I'm noticed. so sorry. I'm not very good at the social meds. So, sweetheart. Yes. You're very good at the social meds. I love Twitter. He does. He does. It's um, a hellscape, and I love it. Where are you receiving your words of affirmation. You can find me on all social medias 
That means Letterboxd. That means Instagram. That means Twitter. That means Untapped. Though you have been not having the beer lately. Well, I can't drink alcohol anymore. That's right. He's got the GERD. It's been a rough one. Uh, but I'm still on Untapped. You can go back into my feed and, and see things that I've been drinking there. You can untap root beer, but I'm not supposed to have root beer either. So whatever. Sad. At Mouth Dork on all social medias. Of course, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. And you can commit to this podcast by, f- oh, you've already said that, by subscribing to us yes. on Podbean. Yes. Spotify. Yes. iTunes. Yes. And while you're on iTunes, why not give us the gift of five stars? What Please. a famil- fulfillment of trust that would be between us. Yeah, I'd really appreciate it. We have not gotten a review on iTunes all year. So that's, no, that's a sad truth. There's no 2020s. I want a 2020 review. Someone out there, please gift us a 2020 review. Five stars only. Thank you, thank you. And until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. We did it. We did do it. <laughs> <laughs>